yesterday or the day, I guess it was yesterday, and uh, maybe I'll bring it over and, and uh, read it when there's, most people are here, maybe on Tuesday, but uh, apparently they're having a very fine Passover there, they're having meetings every day just like we are, and uh, he was able to get enough sermons printed out before the days began and distributed to all the ten different groups so that they had uh, uh, sermons on the Passover, uh, the ones I think on the calendar. I'm not sure what all he printed out, but uh, I think also he did the ones on the Promised Land and some of that. So uh, they're, they're being fed those sermons during these days. So that's a positive thing. He wished us all well over here and said they were praying for us. So I told him, sent him a note back and said we need it, <laughs> and that we were praying for them too. So things, things seem to be going very well over there. And, uh, well, let's get back to First Peter again this evening. I was chastised for only getting through ten verses last sermon. There's so much in here, though, that... Uh, that bears comment and uh, elucidation or explaining as it says or gave the sense of it I guess is the way it puts it in Ezra a couple of things there that uh, people in the church the greater church of God came to despise uh, so the minister shouldn't be up on a on a podium or a stage or any anything above the people uh, but if you've got, especially if you've got quite a few people, it not it nice to be able to see uh, the one speaking? But the, the scriptures give a lie to all those things. You know, people spout off because they think that the ministers are lifting themselves above everybody if they, if they get up where they can be seen. And it says there that they had a platform of wood built up high enough so that everyone could see and here, and then not only did they read the scripture, but it says they expounded it or gave the sense of it. So they, they took the scriptures and expounded them the same way we're doing today. Uh, and that's Bible example that God recorded for us. So, you know, people get these strange ideas of all, of all kinds. I just, happened to, I just happened to think of that one at the moment, but... Uh, Paul talked about preaching a lot and said, how do you learn without a teacher? People say, well, I can learn myself. Well, you can learn a certain amount, but we all need to be taught as well. And uh, I may give sermons, but I've sat through an awful lot of them too over the last 50 some odd years and learned a lot from others. Anyway, we got down to verse, uh, through verse 10. And there he says, we talked quite a bit about how God has singled us out and and given us a very special job as a royal priesthood and a a redeemed or purchased people and a holy nation, the things he expects of us, and that he looks upon us as. And then in verse 10, he concludes that by saying that we have obtained mercy from God, is, is how that we have been given the status in his mind as a royal priesthood. And then in verse 11, he gives us some, uh, some guidance as to how to handle it. 
we may be a chosen generation and a royal priesthood, but we will not be kings and priests truly until the millennium, as Revelation 5.10 says. So, in the meantime, we've appointed, been appointed to be that, but it has not yet been conferred upon us where we've been installed in those offices. We're in training at this point. And uh, we have the world around us that is not a part of the kingdom of God yet by any means. And uh, that is, of course, yet to come when we will be given those offices in power to actually accomplish something from them. But in the meantime, he says, you may, you may have these offices and God may view you that way as he speaks of things that are not as if they already were. But he says here, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. So we are here, uh, still on the earth, not yet having been given glory, uh, not having yet been given rulership, uh, actually, but God looks upon us as the ones who will be there as the bride of Christ and as the kings and priests. Well, meanwhile, we're strangers and pilgrims, on the earth. And you have to conduct yourself in a certain way as a stranger and a pilgrim. Uh, we should not get too comfortable, in other words. Uh, I don't know how many of you have traveled uh, overseas or to different countries, but when you get in a different country, you don't know their culture, you don't know their religion, perhaps. Uh, there can be a very severe language barrier. So you go there and you are pretty much a stranger. And sometimes there is a very extreme racial difference as well. And there can be biases that are there and prejudices that are the other direction from what we've experienced here. Uh, here, uh, the minorities, both the blacks and, and the browns and the uh, Asians and so on have been minority groups compared to the Anglo-Saxons that God used to settle this land. And they have not felt comfortable in many respects and to this day uh, do not in some ways because of the uh, leftovers of uh, injustices and so on from the past. And those have an effect for three and four generations as God puts it. But you you, you you experience a different culture shock when you go into an area that's 99% black, say, and you're white. Uh, it, it, it is quite a shock. And you move carefully, let me say. Uh, you don't push yourself uh, because you never know what might push back or how it might come back at you. So you're pretty tentative in many respects when you're in a foreign land with people that are t think totally different than you do, speak differently and everything else. So he says that we are to look upon ourselves as strangers and pilgrims on this earth. Well, why? Uh, partially, he says, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So... He says, we're in a culture of sin. We're in a culture, wherever you are on this earth, it is not a godly culture. The American nation is not a Christian nation. 
sorry about that. It's just not. Uh, in fact, even those who claim to be Christian don't understand what Christianity even is. So we may have looked at it as a Christian nation, and it's resembling it less and less and less as every decade goes by. Uh, so God says, you're there to live by my words and my ways and my culture, a godly culture, and yet there you are in the middle of a totally worldly culture. Uh, kind of like Lot and his family were in Sodom and Gomorrah, where virtually everyone was homosexual. And they were trying to live godly in that kind of a society, and it was very, very difficult. And it had its pull. Remember, she looked back. I don't know whether that meant she actually turned her head or whether she was thinking, I don't want to leave here, I want that culture. Probably, she must. She probably did physically look back, but became a pillar of salt. So that kind of purified her instantly. <laughs> salt is, is a cleansing agent, and uh, that took care of that. But it's very difficult for us to live in this society that we're comfortable with, or, you know, grew up in. Maybe we've lived in it for 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, and we've been fairly comfortable in it. So he said, you need to look upon yourselves as strangers and pilgrims in a strange area with a strange culture that is ungodly, and abstain from the fleshly lusts of the people that are around us. There's another place where he calls us ambassadors for Christ, and that's, of course, where Ambassador College got its name, is we're not, we're not part of the culture, we're only ambassadors for the kingdom of God here. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. And we're here temporarily as ambassadors, strangers, pilgrims, uh, until that kingdom comes, takes root, and then covers the earth. Then it will be a natural, godly uh, environment for not only us, but for everyone. Meanwhile, look at what's all around us. And he said, these things war against the soul. I talked about that considerably, I think, in the last sermon based on something we read uh, before this, uh, that human nature is always there to pull us into the culture of this world. But we're not supposed to be comfortable in it. We're supposed to look upon ourselves as in a strange land and only pilgrims passing through and not letting the world touch us, as James put it, to be unspotted from the world. Uh, right there at the end of... What is it, chapter 4, James, I think. Um, so let's look upon ourselves as transients. <laughs> we're, we're not here to settle down in this world and be part of it. We're, we're proceeding through and looking for the end of this. Verse 12, having your conduct honest among the Gentiles. So not only are we strangers here, but we're going to be living a different way than they are. And they will look upon us, in that case, as strangers and not a part of them. I, I, you know, you move into a new area in some places. It's not that way so much anymore in, in some city or urban areas where people are moving so much in our uh, 
society that washes back and forth, but we moved into a little, well, barely a village there in Montana between the two church areas, Great Falls and Helena, out in the mountains, and uh, they had to have a really good day, Fourth of July or something, to get a hundred people in town because mostly ranches and so on there in the mountains and the and out in front of the mountains. But uh, we weren't accepted there. You had to be there at least three generations to be a part of them. Uh, they would accept you to some degree, but you weren't part and parcel with them. Uh, one, one or even two generations wasn't enough for the old-timers. Uh, you, they they, they kind of held themselves back, even from people that had been there a generation. And then we were there a few years, and then when I sold the place, some of them would hardly speak to us. Not only were we not, hadn't been there long enough to be acceptable, then we were totally transients, <laughs> you know, riffraff moving through once we sold the ranch because we stayed another year through the winter before we went on to Alaska. And uh, it's just strange. But we need to be strangers and pilgrims to this world. We should not be acceptable to them, in other words. This is our first generation out of the culture of the world. The Church of God has only been extant here in the end time for about 70 years. Well, it's going a little further than that now, but it's, but it's falling apart rapidly. So have your conduct honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, if you live apart from them in the way that you live and act, you're, you're honest, you're upstanding, you're not a part of their culture and the way they do things, uh, someday they will look and say, oh, those were the people of God. They won't be immediate. It says, in the day of visitation, when God begins to visit uh, destruction and havoc and the last plagues, and then Christ will return and will be glorified. So in the days of visitation, uh, when all of their sins are visited upon them and the punishment comes, they're going to begin to have a different attitude. Of course, then we'll be transitioning into actual kings and priests at that point. They will have been then been humbled and become meeker and gotten rid of their pride and vanity and their culture that they had developed is going to be a thing of the past. So then they will look upon us with favor. But I don't see that happening until those days of visitation come. When are they going to glorify God? During this age? No way. Uh, it is going to take God's visitation of the seven last plagues before they are humbled enough to begin to glorify God. So they won't glorify God until Christ returns and puts down and makes every knee bow, and they won't accept us until after that either. But then they'll look back and say, hey, you know, you mean we're going to keep the Sabbath and we're not going to eat pigs? We're going to go up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles? Wow, those people were doing that back then. Then they will look and they'll have a different attitude toward us. 
But it's not going to get better until then. Because remember, they're all going to worship the beast and they're going to hate and persecute the church. So Peter is looking way beyond here in, in what he is saying. He says, you're going to be a stranger and a pilgrim as long as you walk the face of this earth before Christ returns. And then when that visitation comes, when he visits this earth, <laughs> things are going to change. Verse 13 then, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. So he said, You are a stranger, you're a pilgrim, an ambassador, you don't really fit in, but be sure your conduct is honest and upright before them, and then keep their ordinances, keep the things that they say, uh, their law, as long as it doesn't uh, interfere with God's rules. You know, he does say there in Acts 5.29, obey God rather than man. So there comes a point, if there's a conflict, we put God first, obviously, and obey him. Meantime, whatever ordinances they have, we can put up with, we can live by, and we're not to be rebels or in the, let's say, the skinhead or patriot movement or, or some of those things where we are looked upon as something apart from just a follower of God or a Christian. I don't think joining any of those uh, groups or resistance against the government is anything that God would have us be a part of. He wants us to get along with them as best we can. Uh, Christ, even in the Sermon on the Mount, talked about the Roman soldiers, and if they required your cloak, give them your coat also, or, or wanted your coat, give them your cloak also, uh, or, or go an extra mile if they wanted you to carry their sword and their heavy stuff they didn't want to carry, uh, that type of thing. Romans 12 goes into it, or 13, goes into it quite a bit as well about obeying the powers that be. So we are to be honorable citizens, let's put it that way, and not be the kind that are rebels or terrorists or whatever they might pin on you if you're a part of some of these what they call radical groups. Uh, I mean, yes, the United States Constitution, they all swore to uphold, and they're doing just the opposite. But I don't think he wants us to be part of a constitutionalist movement uh, against them. Uh, they are the powers that be. And God has said very clearly there in, in Daniel 4 that he places the basest of men in those positions of power. So if he put them there and he tells us to uh, follow their rules and their instructions and their laws the best we can, then we need to do that. And only where there's conflict between what they tell us to do and, and uh, God's way do we say, no, I'm not going to do it your way, uh, I must do it God's way. Um, that's why I don't have a, a real problem with the county here telling us we've got to be a trailer park or we've got to do this or we've got to do that. It's, it's just stuff that their rules and their laws require. And it doesn't require us to disobey God to put up with some of the stuff that they've laid on us. So we just do our best to get along with them and uh, not be looked upon as, as uh, oddballs in that sense beyond what 
<laughs> they're going to pin on us anyway since they call us a cult. But get along with them the best we can. That's what we're called upon to do. That's what we're trying to do. For so, verse 15, is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So, don't give them, in other words, ammunition beyond what you absolutely have to. Comply, get along, do the best you can, uh, be an upstanding citizen, keep their rules, and by living upstanding, honest, true lives, don't give them anything to fight you over. And if they do persecute you, make sure that it is persecution you don't deserve, in that sense. Uh, Christ didn't deserve the persecution he got, but he, he received it anyway. So he said, as free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Uh, God's rules, his laws, give us freedom way beyond what mankind has. Uh, God's way, His commandments, express love. And if they are kept, we're going to have a good relationship both with God and with man because we're not doing anything to God or to man that we wouldn't want done to us. Uh, we're going to be showing love and kindness and gentleness and mercy and forgiveness and all those things and live together in peace if we're doing it God's way. So it frees us from bad conscience. It frees us from guilt. It frees us from reading some of the things we've been reading in James and Peter already about laying aside uh, malice and guile and hypocrisy and envying and evil speaking. If we don't do those, then we're free from a lot of the confusion and frustration and anger uh, that comes from breaking those rules of God, you see. So we can live in freedom and peace if we don't penalize ourselves by breaking God's rules and commandments. Uh, but don't use Christianity as a cloak for maliciousness. In other words, it's so easy for us to say, well, we're God's people, and it's okay for, for me to make judgments about this or judgments about that or condemn this or that because God wants me to learn how to do judgment. Well, there's a difference between judgment and condemnation. And many times in the Bible when it uses the word in the New Testament, judgment, it means condemnation. Now, we can judge whether something is right or wrong, whether it's sinful or, or righteous in many cases, by fruits. But God forbids us, as we read earlier, about making condemnation or becoming ourselves a judge. He says, God's the judge. You're not. We are not to condemn or even make a judgment on the relative righteousness or unrighteousness of a person. He says, God judges people. You don't. Now, you might judge a particular action if you see it, is being right or wrong. But you might better be careful there. You know, you, you never know whether you're getting the facts all correct or not. I thought about giving a sermon some time back uh, and, and using an analogy like that. And uh, I might yet. 
because to every appearance, the way I was going to tell the story, to every appearance, this person is dead wrong. But when you know the story of why they were where they were, what they were doing, where they were headed, wasn't anything wrong with it. So we don't always know what people's motives are, what their feelings are, or why they're doing what they're doing. But it's very, very easy to sit in judgment. So let's not use our Christianity or becoming kings and priests or judges or however we want to term it as a cloak for our maliciousness. Because that isn't right or fair or godly. Verse 17, honor all men. How do you honor people when you're uh, saying evil things about them? That's not honor. That's contrary to what God says. We must be very, very careful. There's a lot of really good instruction here. This is meat. This isn't just milk. Uh, this, this is the nitty-gritty of what we need to be doing in our attitudes and our approach to life. True Christianity is opposed to the fake, hypocritical type of Christianity the world tends to have. But we can't have maliciousness and hypocrisy behind it. We need to honor all men in and out of the church. Because he's talking here about governors and rulers and, and people out in the world too. Not just each other. So he says, honor all men. That would be in or out of the church. All people. And love the brotherhood. Uh, we need to be developing uh, that kind of attitude toward one another. You know, I, I thought of an analogy I, I did say the other day that, yes, there is a great deal of love here, even though somebody once in a while says, well, there's no love around here. Uh, yes, there is. How much is the question? <laughs> you know, it's like the old story about is the glass half empty or is the glass half full? You have people that have a negative attitude toward life and to the negative type of person, the glass is always only, well, it's half empty. And then you have people who tend to be more positive in their viewpoint of things and to them, there's something in the glass, it's half full. Now God, if, if he were to be any one of those two, is a half full kind of guy. He really is. And we need to come to have that mentality. If God were a half-empty type of person, we would all be in deep, deep trouble. Okay? Now, maybe we have a glass that's half full of love. Maybe we need to fill it on up, but it's not half-empty. There is a lot of love shown around here. A lot of godly love shown. There could be more? Absolutely. There could be less hatred and bitterness and anger and frustration and all those negative things and evil speakings. We need to get rid of that and see if we can get the glass fuller. That's all. But let's not condemn ourselves and say, well, there's no love. Now, when you say that, you're not even saying the glass is half empty. You're just saying it's empty. Nothing there. And that's not true. I don't believe that for a moment. I see too much of it. So, let's be very careful. And let's see if we can get the glass fuller. That's all. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. 
Put him first. First fear, that's the beginning of wisdom right there, as the proverb says. And honor the king. So give the obeisance, the honor, the, the credit to whatever rulers may be there. Uh, we need to be careful even some of our, our, uh, our presidential jokes or cutting remarks or whatever. Yes, we have the basis of men in the government in Washington, just like we have the basis of men in the governments around the world. Uh, most of the leaders of the co- countries of this world are uh, part of the Masonic movement, and they're all brothers behind the scenes uh, trying to put up a new world government. Those are the facts. That's the way it is. But we need to be careful that we don't have uh, attitudes of disdain or hatred or, or that kind of thing toward those people. We need to give them the honor that the office deserves, whether they are deserving of the honor personally or not. I think we need to be more careful with that. It's real easy to express our opinions about some of those people and to put them down. And you know, that doesn't do us any good spiritually. If you get any attitude of putting down the leaders in the country or uh, the state or the county or whatever, it, it puts you in a more negative mindset and it makes it even easier to put down the brotherhood because you're in a negative mood and attitude. It's a matter of a way of thinking. If we think negatively, we need to learn to think positively. And that's a big transition. It doesn't come easy, especially if you've been a negative Nelly all your life and uh, you, you think of the, the bad or the negative side first. need to change it. need to think of the positive first. Otherwise, why is Peter writing this stuff? What, what does it mean? Is it just so many words that don't mean anything? Or is he saying, this is what you really need to do. This is what you really need to be. Uh, so we need to work on this. Now notice he says in verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. Now he's talking about outright slavery here. There were still people in the church who owned slaves in Peter's day, in the early New Testament church. Slavery was fairly common and extant within the church. And some of the slave owners were church members. And some of the slaves were the slaves of church members. We might find that very hard to grasp, but that's the situation that was. He also said that, uh, that there were people in the church who had uh, multiple wives. That's the way they, they came into the church. That was part of the culture around them. They may have already had two or three or four or five, six wives when they came into the church. And they were allowed to keep them. I think they were advised don't marry anymore because God intended one to one, man and woman, uh, from the very beginning, and Christ reiterated that. But uh, I had one evangelist I heard one time, year decades ago in Worldwide, say, well, because we had people in Africa coming into the church who had multiple wives. And he says, well, they just ought to throw them out. 
put them out on the street. I thought, boy, that sounds real fair and loving and, you know. They may have been there for 20, 30 years. May have had three, four, five, six, eight kids. And you're going to just throw them out on the street? I don't think so. I don't think God would cause that or make that happen. He did say there to Timothy, the, the, the elders could only have one wife. Uh, they couldn't be ordained if they had more than that, but they could be in the church. You just don't do it anymore. That's, you know, but you're going to throw your wife and kids out in the street because you come in and understand that, well, I shouldn't have married them. Well, okay, but God allows repentance, doesn't he? Does that mean that they have to suffer as a result of it? That's not the way it was done. And there were people in the church who had slaves as well. What was the instruction? Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the arrogant, the presumptuous, the mean, the nasty, however you want to, whatever synonym you want to put in there, forward doesn't really uh, express it. It's an old King James word. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. So if you happen to be a slave and you have a mean and nasty uh, owner, you're supposed to treat them with respect and love and endure any kind of grief and suffering that comes wrongfully upon you. you we know, We're in a culture today where nobody's going to tell me what to do. We're full of pride and vanity and ego, and perhaps they were to some degree at that time too, but... Uh, they had somebody there that owned them and could tell them everything to do or not to do. And that would have been tough. You think planning and zoning is tough. <laughs> what, what if they owned us lock, stock, and barrel? We, we, we ain't suffered nothing yet, let's put it that way. We really haven't. And then, then he goes on. Verse 20, For what glory is it if when you be buffeted or whipped or beat up or, or mistreated for your faults, you shall take it patiently. But if when you do well and suffer for it and you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. So, if somebody persecutes you for faults that you actually have, there's no recognition from God for you taking that patiently. You deserve it. Now, maybe people shouldn't lay it on you, but if you did it, you deserve it. And if you take that patiently, that, that doesn't mean anything to God. But if when you do well and suffer for it and take that patiently, then that is acceptable with God. That he accepts uh, perhaps would be pleased with uh, because you didn't deserve it. But boy, how quick are we with our ego and our vanity and our self-centeredness. If we're falsely accused, oh my, uh, we hit the ceiling. We'll hit the ceiling even if we're correctly accused. If we're not careful. But if it's a false accusation, it's Katie bar the door. Oh my, we can get irate. 
Well, God says, even if you're accused wrongfully and you're patient, then that is acceptable to God. I think we all have work to do on that one. <laughs> you know? For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. So, uh, remember I was saying, I think just yesterday, how we're to be types of Christ, we're to be like him, think like him, react like him, uh, in all circumstances. We're to be just like him. And here he says, follow his steps, or walk as he walked, as I think First John 2, 6 says. But he suffered for us, and he didn't deserve any of the suffering, uh, and he didn't answer a word. Go back and read Isaiah 53 we read there on Passover evening. He didn't answer back, he didn't say a word, he just took it patiently. And he says, that's the way we're to be. That's the way we're to be. If somebody falsely accuses us, we have no right to be irate. We have no right to strike back or any of those things. It is acceptable to God if we take abuse patiently. That's not, I don't think, the milk of the word. That's tough. May be simple, may be direct, but it's tough to follow. Think of anything harder than that in attitude. How many things can you come up with just off the top of your head that are harder to do than that? Boy, the minute somebody just comes so natural, so easy. He's asking us to do something very, very difficult here. Verse 22, Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again or not back, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. You know, we get so easily offended and so easily upset. We're so thin-skinned that all it takes is a little social slight or something we think is a bit negative about us. Something so small and insignificant that can upset us and get us where we won't even speak to somebody for you know, a month or two or six or whatever, whatever it might be. Or if we do speak, it's uh, in vengeance or with a bad attitude. We, we're not allowed that. We are not allowed that. That's why God said, don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's the words of God. We have no right whatsoever to let the sun set out here and us being angry at anyone. God says, repent of that before sundown. Every day. Do not let the sun set on your anger. Now, do we accept that? We're to live by every word of God. Those are the words of God. Maybe there's room for some growth. <laughs> Maybe there's room for some growth. That, that's, that's a tough one. It's, it's real easy to get angry and stay that way for some period of time. You have to have pretty good self-control and emotional 
control to be able to get past something that quickly. Be kind of tough if they come up and bust you in the chops about ten minutes before Sunday. <laughs> you don't even have all day to get over it. Um, but that's what he's saying, isn't it? To be like Christ. I think we all have room there that we can we can think about that. You know, like I said yesterday, these are the days of unleavened bread. This is a good day to read some of these things and think about it. Uh, you probably didn't think about that one when you're examining yourself before Passover, did you? I didn't. But here it is. That we can't stay angry. We can't threaten back. We can't revile. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, being dead to sins, should live to righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Now this, again, today, Sunday, uh, was the day of the wave chief. He was offered, historically, on this day, his anniversary, uh, to, to the Father early in the morning or in the morning time. And before the end of the day, he had been accepted and was back and could be touched. So he went through all that and took it upon himself and didn't answer back, didn't get angry, Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. And we're to follow in his steps. That's where we are to be. For you were his sheep going astray, but are now returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. So, out in the world, we were like sheep going astray. And even in the church... Before God blew it apart, we were a sheep going astray. We weren't living up to what Peter's telling us right here in Worldwide Church of God. I'll guarantee it. I wasn't, you weren't. But we should be returning to the shepherd and the bishop of our souls and reacting as he reacted and doing as he did and following in his steps. This is a time of repentance. This is a time of changing our attitudes and our approach to life and to each other and to God. And not letting our ego and our vanity and our jealousies and our uh, fleshly human minds, our carnality, rule us, but to rule over those appetites and those attitudes, to get them under control and to truly walk as Christ walked. Well, it's been nearly an hour, and I think that's a mouthful for one night, so let's stop there.